0: When I was in campus ministry, I discovered a website, it's mormon.org, and you can request a visit from Mormon missionaries. So I put my pastor's name and address in the, in the information box and had them go to his house as a prank. I thought, well, that worked really well. Well. Uh, so then I had a guy on staff with me who was an intern, who was just a recent college grad, and, and he was living with uh, Scott McAllister. So Matt McClure and Scotty were living together. And, uh, and I put Matt's name in at mormon.org, and I had Mormons show up. And so they called ahead, said, hey, we're coming to your house. We want to talk to you. And in a panic, he called me and said, will you come over and help me witness to them? And I was like, dang it. That backfired. So I ended up over at his house, over at Matt and Scott's uh, apartment, having a meeting with two young Mormon missionaries. And we actually had a really good conversation. And at one point in the conversation, I realized something that I hadn't realized before. In all my study of apologetics and everything else, I realized that we um, we were using the same words, but we meant very different things when we used them. And so I, I, so I came up with this illustration I said, so let's, let's just pretend for a minute my wife's name is, we'll, we'll pretend, her name really is Jen Satterfield, but let's pretend that we were sitting here, and as we're sitting here, there is CNN on the TV, and we've got it muted, but you see the ticker at the bottom, and uh, along that ticker you see, Jen Satterfield, axe murderer, kills nine. And, and we're, whoa, wait a minute, Seriously? Jen Satterfield, and my response would be, <laughs> of course not. That's silly. I, mean, I know my wife; she would never do that. Maybe to anybody except me, but, but she would never, she would never kill nine people with an axe, right? And she says, no, 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 Sadie, you got to come back in the room. You got to see this. And, and we come back in the room, and there's a there's a helicopter shot of uh, this person in the street with her back to the camera, and she's got an axe. You can see that there's an axe. It looks like Jen Satterfield axe murderer kills nine. And I'm like, look, that's not. Jen Satterfield, right? And then she turns to face the camera and it's not my wife. It's another person named Jen Satterfield. And I said, that's what we're doing when we talk about Jesus, right? You're saying Jesus and I'm saying Jesus, but you mean somebody totally different from the person that I'm talking about. And I think that um, around the world today, much of what calls itself Christianity is using the same name, but talking about a different person. Or I'm or to say it a different way. We have the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary, right? We, we, we use some of the same vocabulary. And I think it's possible to talk about Jesus. It's possible to say the word, the phrase, the gospel, or to talk about God and to use those words and to mean something that's completely unbiblical, something that's actually antithetical to the gospel, that's opposed to the knowledge of Jesus. And, and, and so you think, okay, that's a reality in our world today. We can, we can encounter people that use the same verbiage but mean something totally different. And then you just come down a notch from that, or a notch or two to the place of uh, being biblical and teaching the word but painting pictures that are inaccurate to the text or that become caricatures of the text. One of those that I'm really most sensitive to is uh, Noah's Ark as a bathtub toy with the giraffe head poking out and the, t- and the elephant's trunk hanging down the side. Now, listen, I know some of my leaders are all giggling and whispering right now because we have a bouncy house that is that, right? <laughs> But I think that actually does damage to the narrative of the text. Kids grow up in a house where they think that's what Noah's Ark looked like, and then they get to college, and your professor says, oh, those are all myths and stories, and they couldn't possibly be true. That actually helps undermine some of the worldview, right? Because it's a caricature of the text. It's not really a representation of what the text says. Now, Now, the bouncy house was free just so you understand, like it was given to us, like we didn't choose it, right? And it's a great draw for kids, like the kids, it's a magnet for children, it's crazy. Um, Beggars can't be choosers, especially when you're a young church plant. But I, I think there are many more stories like that in scripture. We get images in our brain about how things were, but those images and pictures don't actually reflect the reality of what's happening in the text of scripture, you know, Noah spent 100 years building the ark that wasn't boat-shaped at all. It wasn't built to navigate water or to sail. It was simply built to stay afloat and not capsize with all its occupants. So it's a long rectangle. It's not, it's not curved on the end. It's, there's no rudder. God's not the co-pilot. He's the only pilot. Um, I think about Isaac and Abraham. When Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac at Mount Moriah, right? Uh, Isaac's not a, a little five-year-old boy. It says he carried all the wood for the sacrifice himself. Okay, that's not a five-year-old kid. That's like a 17 or 18 or 20-year-old young man carrying all the wood for the sacrifice up a mountain, right? The same is true, I think, for many of the happenings in the gospel accounts of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And I think Palm Sunday today is one of those places where we have uh, a caricature of what actually happened. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at Palm Sunday Uh, I want us to see through the sanitized Sunday school version of the biblical narratives that actually fall short of what actually happened. I'm thinking about growing up in uh, Southern Baptist life with the flannel graphs and uh, seeing the little cartoon characters say, Hosanna in the highest, son of David, redeem us, redeem us, right? They're so excited to receive Jesus as their deliverer, but that's, that's not really what's happening here. So let's go to the text this morning. And let's see what's happening and let's figure out, did God warn his people in advance of these things prophetically in the Old Testament? And so what I've done this week, um, it'll be hard for you to follow this part. I think, uh, yeah, I put the, the word on the screen. I've taken Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four accounts of Palm Sunday, of the triumphal entry, and I've harmonized them. I've taken the text from the NASV, the New American Standard, and I've harmonized the accounts this week. Uh, By the way, you can buy a copy of the Harmony of the Gospels, really helpful tool to have in your library to just see how those things flow chronologically and where they overlap with each other. Um, so, So just follow along with me on the screen. When they approached Jerusalem, coming to Bethpage and Bethany, near to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying... Go into the village opposite you and immediately as you enter, you will find a donkey tied up there and a colt with her on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Thus you shall speak. The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent away and those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. Now this took place to fulfill that which was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That's a reference to Zechariah 9, 9 and Isaiah 62, 11. Now the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees and they went out to meet him and began to cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a reference to Psalm 118, 26. These things the disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing witness to Christ. And many of the multitudes spread their garments in the road and others were doing the same with the palm branches and many more were coming out to meet him because of what they heard from the crowd about the sign he performed in raising Lazarus. And he descended the Mount of Olives and was approaching the city and the multitudes that were following began to cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were praising God joyfully with loud voices for the miracles which they had seen. But the Pharisees therefore said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And some of the Pharisees who happened to be in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these become silent, even the very stones will cry out. And when he approached He saw the city, he began to weep over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the day shall come upon you when your enemies shall throw up a siege mound before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So, I want to make some observations this morning, contrary to the Sunday school version of that reality. On the Sunday before Passover, Jesus came out of the wilderness on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, just as the prophecy of Messiah said he would come. People spread their cloaks and they spread palm branches on the road before him. And then the disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And the crowd is shouting this phrase Hosanna! Right? Hosanna, which means deliver us, save us. But understand this this is a slogan of the ultra nationalistic zealots, which meant in their context save us, give us freedom. We're tired of being oppressed by the Romans. This is not a cry for deliverance salvifically from their sins, this is a cry for deliverance politically from the Romans. They're excited because they think Messiah has come, but their expectation of Messiah is not the right expectation. The people were waving palm branches. Well, you gotta understand that symbol, the palm branch, had once been placed on the Jewish coinage when the Jewish nation was free, dating back to the Maccabean Revolt some 200 years before Jesus ever came. The the palm branches are not a symbol of peace and love as Christians usually assume. They're a symbol of Jewish nationalism an expression of the people's desire for political freedom. It's like waving the stars and stripes today, right? This is, we're free. This is our country. This is what we stand for. So you ever wonder why that huge crowd was there on the, on the outside of Jerusalem, along the road, at the gate, on the streets, waiting for Jesus with palm branches, expecting his coming? Well, it's, it's Passover week. And so many people come from all over the Mediterranean region to attend the Passover, just like the law says, the Jewish law And Jesus had attended many Passovers in his lifetime. What's the difference this time? Why is this any different? He'd never been received like this before. Well, the Gospel of John tells us that the great and awesome miracle found in John 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, had all of Jerusalem just totally abuzz with Jesus' arrival. And everybody's talking about it. And Lazarus himself is in Jerusalem. And he's telling everybody who will listen about being raised from the dead. I mean, he's sharing his testimony with people. And Jesus certainly certainly did that miracle because he loved Lazarus and he loved Mary and Martha. But there's even a higher purpose, and that's to prepare Jerusalem for his entry on Palm Sunday. On what they would call Lamb Selection Day, by the way. Right? This is the day when all the families would go in to select the lambs that they would sacrifice on Passover later in the week. John 12, 9 through 11 tells us of the testimony of Lazarus in Jerusalem that was causing many to believe in Jesus. And John 12, 18 tells us because of the miracle of raising him from the dead, the multitude went and met Jesus because they had heard that he performed this sign. So Palm Sunday, we often call it the triumphal entry of Christ. But was it? Is that the right way to think about it? Outwardly, it appears to be a triumphal entry, especially if you look at the crowd, but it's not the way that we think. You, you would think, you know, we get this idea, I think, in American Christianity, is Jesus is like, he's been laboring for three and a half years and he can't seem to get... The, the crowd as a whole to follow him. And he keeps making boneheaded errors. Like, you know, he's got a big crowd and then he says, eat my flesh and drink my bones and then they all go away. It's like, dude, do you not understand like how American evangelism works? Like, you don't tell people hard things, right? It's crazy, why do you keep, and then suddenly he's got a big crowd of people <laughs> and you think, this is it. Oh, I've worked so hard to get everybody to accept me as Messiah. And then he pulls the donkey over and weeps. Like what is going on here? Outwardly it seemed to be a triumphal entry, especially from the eyes of the crowd. But let's get a glimpse into his thinking here in Luke 19, 41. His heart wasn't filled with joy, his eyes were filled with tears. He knew that this crowd's expectations for him are misplaced. He knew that the religious leaders want to kill him. He knew that huge, unprecedented crowds cramming to to come out to meet him would be the tipping point for the religious leaders to act and to put him to death. And everything's coming together just as the Trinity had planned. And as Jesus approaches the city, it says he wept over it and said, if you had only known in this day the things which make for peace. Jesus is bringing peace with God, which is found in relationship with himself. And they're thinking political peace, military action that's gonna bring us peace as a nation. He goes on to say that because of their rejection of him the following Friday, the city of Jerusalem will be judged because they had not recognized the time of their visitation by their own Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for so long for. At this point, maybe you're, maybe you're thinking, well, they did welcome him, and they did see him as king, and they did see him as savior. Yes, but this is a fickle crowd, right? These are the same voices who are, who are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and in just a few days we will be saying, crucify him, crucify him. And they're looking for a political, military king to overthrow Rome and to bring in this kingdom of prosperity and grandeur like they had under David and then Solomon, only better. And so the question you have to wrestle with is, were their expectations completely unrealistic? Were they unrealistic? Well, so, so if you notice in the text, there was an allusion, this donkey thing, is a prophecy in Zechariah 9. So let's go back. I want to go back to Zechariah for just a sec. <clears throat> It's never good to cough into the microphone. Mm. Zechariah is one of the most messianic books in the Old Testament. Among its passages, we find Messiah presented as the branch who will remove iniquity, as the shepherd, as the coming king. There's a prophecy in Zechariah about being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, There's there's so much in that book. Uh, I, I want us to look at chapters eight and nine, and we're just gonna work through the text. If you have your Bible, turn over to Zechariah chapter eight. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, verse one, and said, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I've returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem will be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Well, that's a change, Right? From Israel being in exile in Babylon and being punished for their sins and punished for their idolatry. This is a pretty significant shift here in Zechariah 8. Um, there's a coming age of peace and prosperity for Israel, especially the city of Jerusalem. Uh, describing here a messianic reign, the Davidic covenant, the promise to David that he would never fail to have a descendant upon the throne of Israel in a military uh, political role, and that the Temple Mount Jerusalem would be known even among the pagan Gentiles as the holy mountain of God. That's a big deal, right? Verse 4 says, thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of their great age. We hear that and that doesn't mean anything to us, but old people abounding, uh, keep in mind like the average lifespan of the people of Zachariah's day due to war and conflict and disease Right? To have lots of old people around is an indication of peace and health and prosperity. These are good things. Like when, when we're at a place where we're, we're at peace and people can live to a ripe old age and enjoy their grandchildren, that's a, that's a huge thing. And it says in verse 5, the streets of the city are full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord, it's it's marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in these days, and it's marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. So he says, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. This is the idea, the, the, the Jewish word, the Hebrew word is aliyah. It's a regathering from the nations. God will bring the Jewish people back out of their diaspora, their dispersion, back into the land of Israel. And what's crazy is we're seeing this today, right? We're seeing this today, especially from Russia, the Jews coming down from the north into Israel you know the one major pocket of of Jewish population in the world that's a big holdout are the Jews that live in the U.S. because their level of living their standard of living and their level of comfort is so high they're not yet motivated to in in mass return to the promised land that's going to change who knows I don't know why it will change or what will precipitate that change but they will and who knows maybe some some of us Gentiles will go with them I, I don't know I'm like I'd be I wouldn't be bad um God goes on to say, I'll bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts. That the temple might be built. So, so you've been reading these things in the word from the prophets of old, and now you're seeing them come to pass. He says, verse 10, before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beasts, neither was there any safety from foe for him who went out or came in, for I set every man against his neighbor but now I will not deal with the remnant of this people like I did in the former days, declares the Lord. There shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give its produce. The heaven gives its dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all things. And you, as you have been a byword and a cuss word among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, now I'm going to save you and you will be a blessing. Fear not, let your hands be strong. Like, If you're a savvy reader of the, the text, if you're a Sunday school graduate, like verse 11 sticks out, there's a fundamental shift in the, in the nature of God's relationship with national Israel that's taking place here. And, and if, you, if you want to know the spoiler, go to Romans 11, <laughs> right? They've been cut off, they've been hardened, but they'll be grafted back in. All of Israel will be saved, right? How does that all work? Join me for the study in Romans later when we get to that. But for now, just know the spoiler alert is Romans 11, Let's finish uh, Zechariah 8 and 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 14, I purpose to bring disaster on you when your fathers provoked me to wrath. I didn't relent, says the Lord. And so again, I purpose in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and good to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. You'll speak truth to one another. You'll render in your gates judgments that are true, that make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and do not love falsehood, for all those things I hate, declares the Lord. And he goes on and on and on, talks about turning their days of fasting into days of feasting, and then, so all of this, if you read the rest of chapter 8, culminates in the Gentiles then begin to seek God in Jerusalem, and they begin to come, it's a glimpse of the messianic kingdom, the thousand year reign of Jesus. to the Jews living prior to the time of Jesus, they, they weren't making that distinction first coming, second coming. This is an expectation they have of Messiah, right? So then you get to chapter nine and, uh, and there's this, this whole verse one through seven, Israel's ancient enemies are now being, they're receiving justice in full. The people who've downtrodden and, and beat on Israel all these years, they're receiving justice. And then verse eight, God says that he's personally protecting Israel from future harm. He says, I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none may march to and fro. No oppressor will ever march over them again. For now I see with my own eyes. And then he says, verse nine, here's the prophecy, all of that (laughs) chapter and a half to get us back to, Palm Sunday, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. So, so all of those promises, all of those expectations, tied to, in the mind of a Jewish person in the first century, This verse 9 in Zechariah 9. So, so all those things that are going to happen, we're so excited about because when we see our Messiah coming on a colt, on a donkey, man, we're no longer going to be oppressed, right? All the Gentiles will seek God here in Jerusalem and everything's going to change for us. This, This is not an unrealistic expectation. They just weren't able to parse out the first coming and the second coming of the Messiah, they weren't seeing the distinction. So the king is coming, Israel's Messiah, Mashiach Nagib. He's crowned with salvation. He's humble. He's riding on a donkey. Uh, I don't know if you've ever spent time around equine animals, right? We, we, our neighbors had horses in our backyard for many years, and uh, we'd be sitting at the breakfast table, and the fence line was about 25 feet away, and when the horses would come out into the pasture, if they were feisty, they would, they would run hard, and you could be sitting in the kitchen and you could feel the ground shake. Just three horses. Not like a whole herd of like a hundred horses, just three majestic beasts, just you feel the ground move under them and they're just so muscular and sleek and and then they had they had the two donkeys. It's like donkey. Uh, you go, horse donkey. Right? That's really that's really what you're dealing with, these these majestic creatures, powerful creatures and, and then this and then this comical almost animal that looks like it might be a distant cousin to the majestic thing over here, but it's a, it's a donkey. And you just go, really? Jesus? Donkey? <laughs> Seriously? Why would you? Because I'm humble. Because I'm trying to communicate something here to you people. I'm humble. Now, second coming, white horse. That's a di- there's a different mission here. But first coming, Humility approachability. Love. I want, to be, I want to be in relationship. I want you to know me. Time doesn't permit us to dig deep into Daniel's prophecy this morning. We talked about Zechariah. There's a prophecy in Daniel 9 um, that was documented 300 years before Jesus was born. And so we know that there's It's one of the most attacked books in Scripture, but it's clear. Even like liberal scholars go, yeah, no, Daniel's been around hundreds of years before Jesus, so nobody could have put these words in there. Nine twenty-four, Daniel nine twenty-four and twenty-five is a prophecy about uh, weeks of years, and uh, and the entry, the timing of the entry of the King into Jerusalem. Now, the idiom for a week of years is common in Israel because. They measure time in sevens. We do it in tens. We talk about decades. They talk about weeks of years in sevens. But um, if you read Daniel nine twenty four and 25, which I will not do at the moment, just know, uh, I'll give you the snapshot here, the exact commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given by a Babylonian king named Artaxerxes Longimanus. And it was given on March 14th, 445 BC. And you go, why am I getting a history lesson from my pastor this morning? Because that's one of the things that the prophecy says in advance would happen. That there would be a a declaration to rebuild the the city, not the temple, but the city, the walls of Jerusalem. And that from that proclamation until the coming of Mashiach Naib, the king, Messiah, would be a certain amount of time. There's a certain amount of time that has to transpire. That's interesting because we know that during the ministry of Jesus, there were several occasions when people attempted to make him king. And what did he do? Every time, he'd disappear. Or he would would elude the crowd. They said, we're going to make him king because he fed us lots of food. We want you to be king because then we'll get lots of food. And he's like, no, mine hour has not yet come. That's a strange thing to say, right? Well, the time is not right yet. And then one day, he meticulously arranges it. On this particular day, he rides into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah that the Messiah would present himself as king in exactly that way. Whenever we miss things like this in the text, the Pharisees come to our rescue, right? And they, they, they get riled up about something that he's doing. Uh, and we should take note of that because it's almost always either equating himself with God, calling himself God, or... Proclaim himself to be king, and, and that's what he's doing. And the, the, they felt that this overzealous crowd was blaspheming, proclaiming Jesus as their Messiah and king, and, and, and they were afraid that the Romans are going to hear and think that there's a riot happening and come down and begin to slaughter them as it happened in the past. But what they don't realize is that this isn't the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus endorsed it. He said, I tell you, if these hold their peace, if they remain silent, even the stones will begin to cry out. And this is the only occasion that Jesus presented himself as king. It happened on April 6, 32 AD. Now here's the crazy thing. I think I put this up here. Is the next one, does it give you the number? Yeah, 173,880 days, which is the exact amount of time given in Daniel's prophecy in chapter nine from the declaration to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until the coming of Mashiach, to the day, to the day. Jesus came to the people as the Lamb of God, the sinless Messiah who would die on their behalf. And he he appeared to them in that capacity on Lamb Selection Day in preparation for Passover. It's like God saying, here's my lamb. Will you choose him? But instead of turning to Jesus, the Lamb of God, the crowds misunderstood this proclamation that he was their Messiah. They wanted a political military deliverer. And Jesus weeps. He wept. And can you understand why he would weep? The tears that Jesus shed as the people cried out their political hosannas were tears of grief for the hearts of his people. Jesus foresaw a terrible devastation of Jerusalem that would result because these people did not recognize him as God's Messiah. The people were looking for a Messiah who offered political deliverance and a political kingdom, and ultimately that's part of the future plan, but that kingdom can only be populated by those who have submitted themselves to Messiah's rule and reign at a heart level. And that's what he's about. He knew the majority of the crowd would have nothing to do with a Messiah who offered forgiveness and deliverance from sin. And in his grief over their distorted beliefs, Jesus wept and he wept loudly. And the majority of the people had a wrong expectation of Jesus then. And I think the same is true today. Many people have a very wrong expectation of Jesus now. There are two wrong notions that keep people out of heaven and they usually go together. First, people wrongly believe that God is far too loving and decent to send moral good people to hell. But that kind of thinking grossly underestimates the serious nature of our sin. A single sin in thought or word or deed is enough to condemn us and it compromises God's justice in favor of his compassion which ultimately compromises his holiness when we think that he wouldn't be just towards sin. But the second wrong notion that, is that most of us are good enough to qualify for heaven. I mean, sure, we've got our faults, but we're not like murderers or terrorists or anything like that, right? I mean, we, we figure the scales will tip our way and we stand before God because we're sincere. We mean well, right? This is the, the, the many Jews are making the same mistake. They thought that since they were descendants of Abraham, they, they observed the ritual laws prescribed by Moses and we're better than those Gentiles, right? And we're certainly better than them. Certainly God's not gonna judge us. Their error is that it requires perfect righteousness to get to heaven. And that's where the, that's where the cross comes into all of this. This is where we're headed next Sunday. Well, Friday night, really. Friday night in this room at 6 p.m., Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. And, and I want to challenge you this week as we, as we move towards Good Friday, I want you to begin to think like a disciple of Jesus and not fully understanding the resurrection that's coming on Sunday. They go into a place of despair and confusion. The very chapter in Luke, chapter 24, where we get our name, Emmaus Road, those two disciples who were walking on the road that day, they were confused, they didn't understand fully. Jesus had some correcting and teaching to do with those guys. I want us to come together Friday night as we we do that with the mindset of trying trying to immerse ourselves in that moment and not fully understanding and appreciating the resurrection, but being confused and overwhelmed by the crucifixion. And Jesus here on Palm Sunday, he weeps. He weeps for every single human being We have both incidents of the Son of God weeping, taking place within a single week of one another. Did you know that? The two times in the Gospels where Jesus cries, one at the grave of Lazarus less than a week prior to Palm Sunday. In both places, he cries. At the tomb of Lazarus, he cries. There's silent tears of grief. He's sad for Mary and Martha. He sees their pain, but he knows he's going to raise Lazarus but he feels their pain. This is a God who relates to us in our emotional state. This is a God who feels what we feel and can relate to us. When he cries on Palm Sunday at the entry into Jerusalem, it's not silent tears of grief. It's sobbing. It's sobbing because the people that he loved have misunderstood why he had come. He entered Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. He presented himself as God's perfect spotless lamb. The crowd sang and cheered that Jesus knew that in only days those same crowds would be calling for his crucifixion. He knew what pain awaited him, birthed out of a great love with which he loved his creation, birthed out of a desire to redeem and reconcile all things to himself. He knew the anguish that was coming He saw the fickleness of human hearts rejoicing because of wrong expectations and this caused him to sob loudly and uncontrollably. And so I'll just leave you with this thought. Jesus weeps for every man, woman, boy, and girl. How does Jesus weep for you this morning? Does he weep for you as a friend with whom he shares the grief that you feel when sad things happen and hard things happen and your heart is broken, he weeps with you? Or does he weep for you because you have wrong expectations of Messiah and you don't actually know who he is? How does Jesus weep for you this morning? Lord, would you give us grace to wrestle with that question and to understand where we really are on that spectrum Are we in the place of Mary and Martha who put their faith in you and trusted you? They didn't understand everything that you did. Lord, we just say to you, we don't understand everything that you do all the time. But we love you and you love us. And when we hurt, you weep for us. You you enter into our, uh, our place of pain. Father, I pray that there are any persons here today that don't know you that they would be in the category of people that you weep for and sob for loudly because they have wrong expectations of you and think that you're the genie in the bottle who just gives them what they want or you're going to pay their rent. I don't know, Lord. I don't know. But I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in hearts, that you would bring us to the place of reconciliation and oneness with you by the power of your spirit. We ask these things in your name. Amen.